Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. everyone welcome to stick to wrestling my name is john mcadam this is the stick to wrestling podcast a podcast mostly dedicated to wrestling in the 70s 80s and 90s i say that every week and every week we seem to be doing the 80s uh we are today are going to be doing a tribute to the 1988 survivor series celebrating that 35th anniversary before we get rolling on that i first want to invite you to follow me on twitter or whatever they're calling it now nowadays um just search john mcadam and follow the guy who has the stick to wrestling uh, logo as his avatar if you would like to donate to stick to wrestling uh you can paypal me at pro wrestling archives at gmail.com this podcast is free it has no advertisement so if you want to hit the tip jar please do me the favor uh my occasional sometimes co-host steve generelli steve thank you for coming on and could you please tell the good people about our facebook group Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have some great uh, responses this week. Uh, David Ferguson posted a video of Ric Flair talking about the Iron Claw, the new Von Erich movie, and Ric Flair thought that the film is coming out maybe 20 years too late. I, I'm wondering if that film should be coming out at all, to be honest with you. I mean, it's one of those <laughs> movies I look at and I'm like, how did this movie ever get made? I, I don't get it. Well, I, I think I was in the same boat with you, but when I saw that trailer and the fact that the trailer looks so much, so authentic, like 80s wrestling looked, I, I'm going to give it a chance. I think I think it might actually, uh, you know, catch some catch some heat and people will like it. All right. I, I, you know what? If I hear enough good reviews on it, I will check it out. Otherwise, I don't think I would watch it if it was on a drive a drive-in movie that I could see in my in my front porch. I mean, it. it I, I don't get it. I don't get. How how this how someone said you know what it's 2023 and i think people are going to be interested in this subject and i lived through at least some of the von eric thing and a lot of people are saying wait a minute you lived in nashua new hampshire but it was on i watched the show every week um on channel 25 here in boston for three years 1983 until 1987 when i just couldn't watch it anymore it was terrible <laughs> but you know i was i was a big fan of that that promotion and the product and i don't get it well i, I kind of think like uh like the movie the wrestler with mickey rourke i mean that was a long time ago uh that was like a, a good 15 years ago and that movie did really well uh, I mean, it's obvious that there is mainstream interest in wrestling. Uh, why not uh, explore uh, uh, an interesting time in wrestling? And then hopefully it'll do well. But you know what? The Wrestler, and by the way, that was a really good movie. You don't need to be a wrestling fan to appreciate that Mickey Rourke movie. And I watched it twice. I don't think I could watch it again because it's so sad. And it's really authentic. Like, whoever made that movie, whoever scripted that movie, that's what indie wrestling really was like. I give them a lot of credit. Oh, it was a great movie. Uh, but getting back to our uh, Facebook uh, uh, people, uh, St Steve Zai wrote, uh, about AEW, and he was asking about what are what are our feelings about it, and uh, and and that created a really good discussion. And you and I kind of chipped in our ideas about it too, uh, the popularity of AEW, and then lastly, Jamie Hama had a Hammer great uh, thread. He had a great thread about uh, just how bad it was Roddy Piper in blackface and black body paint to go against Bad News Brown at WrestleMania. That that was pretty bad. It was bad in 1990, and to say that it has not aged well is the biggest understatement ever. I, I've always said that I always thought Roddy's heart was in the right place, but, I mean, his delivery was just horrible. I mean, that was, in 1990, we were like, oh, no, Roddy, no bad idea. And he looked like that guy from Star Trek. Remember that guy? Of course, yeah. yeah. From, from season, season three, episode 63. Don't call me a uh, geek or anything but yeah they had 63 episodes in one in one season <laughs> no i mean uh, <laughs> out, of, out, of, out of the classic 79 that was probably about episode 63 but uh it was really uh, a terrible uh thing for piper to do that it just I, as you said it did not age well 
No, and like I said, I don't think Roddy, I think Roddy meant well. I think he was trying to get across a, a positive message, and he, it was just a mess. It was, the whole thing was a mess. But anyway, let's talk about the 1988 Survivor Series. Ninth, the 1987 Survivor Series, which we did not review. By, by the way, let me take a step back. There are a lot of anniversaries coming up. Uh, Thirty-year anniversaries, thirty-five-year anniversaries, forty-years anniversary, forty-year anniversaries, and we just can't do them all. I mean, Clash of the Champions four uh, was a really good show, and the thirty-fifth anniversary for that is coming up, and we're not going to do it because we just can't turn this show into you know one one show review after the other. I like to do, do them occasionally, but I don't want to do them constantly, although the next couple of months are going to be a lot of those because we've got a lot of big show reviews coming up. Starcade 83, Starcade 93, Starcade 88, uh, World Class, the, the big Thanksgiving show they had in 1983. So the next couple of months we'll have a lot of those, but it's not going to be constant and if we miss a show that you may have liked, like the 1989 Royal Rumble, we're not doing that one. You know, for just one example. Well, uh, that, that's a shame because the John Studd winning the Royal Rumble needs to be celebrated. But, uh, <laughs> John Studd in 1989. Oh, my God. What a train wreck. <laughs> But, uh, but you know, it, it was fun for me to revisit this Survivor Series 88. I mean, I can remember watching it at home all those years ago. And, and you know, I, I think it, it held up pretty well for what it was. Uh, I mean, they were trying to uh, give you another chapter in the ongoing uh, um, <laughs> storyline of Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, and Elizabeth. And uh, and that, that really played out well. But, uh but yeah, we could uh, before we hit our questions. I mean, we could kind of go over the matches if you'd like. Oh, definitely. And we got a really good question. I thought from Kevin Waterhouse. He's asked, "What if the demolition and the powers of pain? What if that double turn didn't happen? Would anything from this show have been memorable?" And I had already watched the rewatched the show before I read that that, that question. The answer was no. I didn't remember anything from this show <laughs> except for that one thing coming in. I, I literally I, I was like, okay, it was Bossman and Akeem against Savage and and uh, uh, Savage and Hogan and the double turn and that's about it. But it was a good show. I, I thought 1980, the 1987 Survivor Series I thought was a really good show. We didn't review that and that's okay. Maybe someday we will. And you're thinking, okay, 1988, the, the, the Last one, the last one was good. Maybe this one will be good too. Yeah, I, I think um, you know, um, you know, as far as looking back on it now after rewatching it, I mean, I think that that little bit piece of business they did at the end of the show with Hogan, Savage, and Elizabeth, to me, that was the only really like, hey, let's push this storyline along a little bit. Let's give it a little nudge. I mean, the thing with demolition and powers of pain. It, it it did, I think, in the long run, uh, prove to be a good move. Uh, Demolition, I mean, by the time of WrestleMania six in Toronto, I would say Demolition was one of the most over acts in the entire federation. They were really, really popular at that point. And that's, you know, going a, a year and a half later. So I guess turning them, you know, full-fledged uh, baby faces was a good move. Um, in the Powers of Pain, teaming up with Fuji, it really, they they really kind of moved down the card from this point forward. Uh, they were a good team. I mean, they had good matches with the Rockers and other teams, but they were really never in a major uh, angle or uh, ongoing storyline. No, they weren't. Um, and they had, I think the WWF had high hopes for them coming in, and it, it just didn't happen. But I'll tell you what, Steve, let's talk about, and I, I have a lot to say about the Hogan Savage storyline. I'll, I'll talk about that when we get to the main event. But the opener, the Ultimate Warrior, Brutus Beefcake, the Blue Blazer, Sam Houston, and Jim Brunzel against the Honky Tonk Man, Greg Valentine, uh, Danny Davis, Ron Bass, and Bad News Brown. I thought it was a good match that served its purpose, which was con to continue the ongoing Ultimate Warrior big push. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was uh, good in that sense. Uh, he was uh, ended up being the sole survivor of this match. I mean, just some some thoughts about this opening match, which was a decent opening match. Um, originally, Don Morocco was supposed to have Jim Brunzel's spot. Brunzel filled in for Morocco, who got fired on the European trip. It, they did do kind of a fun little uh, storyline in this match or that uh, Bad News Brown was so unfamiliar with tag team wrestling. He was pretty much going to wrestle the entire match, but he he did get a little bit tired at one point and uh, had a, a altercation with one of his partners, Greg Valentine, and they had to uh, – he, he basically left the ring and never came back. That was kind of fun. He eliminated himself, and it continued telling a story that, oh, my gosh, this guy just can't get along with everyone. And he was main eventing major arenas against Hulk Hogan at this point. Hulk Hogan with that ridiculous bonnet thing he had going on. (laughs) The war bonnet, yeah. (laughs) The war bonnet, yeah. Let me go buy one of those and wear it in front of my friends. And, you know, (laughs) but I thought, you know, again, it served a purpose. Like, you know, Bad News Allen, he's just this outcast guy who can't get along with anyone. Yeah, later in the show, uh, he got an interview with uh, Sean Mooney, and he talked about getting title matches with Randy Savage, which was right around the corner. So, I mean, it really uh, showed you the the show uh, was well put together, well thought. There there was reason behind what they did. Um, I I will say, uh, when I saw Danny Davis in this match, I thought to myself, uh, Danny Davis should have been, like, out of the promotion by the end of WrestleMania III. uh, To me, he was just completely... Completely, you know, any any usefulness he had was done by WrestleMania three, and here we are a year and a half later, and he's still, you know, getting a push. Well, you know what they put? They gave him so much TV time, late '86 early 87 that they had to do something with him and and again even now i think that you know that tv time was wasted i mean they just gave him a very minor role and the best part about danny davis is he went back to refereeing and there was no storyline no explanation just okay he's a referee again yeah yeah he got reinstated and he was he was a decent referee again he wasn't doing anything goofy and uh but but yeah i um you know he was a guy that that uh he kind of got the most out of his uh run and got some good paydays along the way um one one thing i thought was interesting in the opener too was just seeing greg valentine i mean you and i had just completed this major major uh review of early 80s wwf and greg valentine was always you know portrayed and looked upon as this very very serious single star and uh, a definite definite threat to the world title that Backlund held here you can tell that you know they're really going much more showbiz on stuff like he's wearing his tights have a lot more uh like uh bedazzler on yes. him and, uh, and and you know and he's got he's got the knee pad thing uh you know to uh, apply the figure four better with and and and, and you know he, it just shows you that they're really desperately trying to keep some of the older guys more fresh and and they're trying to make everybody more gimmicky they're getting away from like the more serious guys the way greg valentine was always ultra ultra serious and it, and that part was kind of sad when watching this it was greg valentine is one of my all-time favorites and this is a reflection of you know what happened when the territories died greg valentine used to do about a year year and a half in every you know from mid-atlantic then he'd go to uh, to the wwf for a while then back to the mid-atlantic territory and he just stayed in the wwf and just got more and more stale by the year and it was just a sad sight i mean he had a a, an offer from wcw or the nwa when his wwf contract was expiring at the end of 1987 and even i was like his value is gone at this point. He's he's not going to be any less stale in JCP than he would be in the WWF. And at this point, he's just an old guy, you know, go, going further and further down the card. Sam Houston, at this point in his career, I was thinking he would be on to bigger and better things. Um He's a big guy, and eventually he would fill out. He still hadn't filled out completely yet. He was by far the the leanest guy in the ring. I was always surprised that he never had a bigger career. 
Well, it, it, got, it had to be tough with the WWF. I mean, in this particular match, he just looked like a crash test dummy, really. Yeah. I mean, Ron, Ron Bass and B- Bad News Brown were just throwing him all over the place. And, and I think Ron Bass was a guy, when you look back on these years uh, of the late 80s, I mean, he had definitely proven himself in uh, Florida wrestling. Uh, he was kind of like a, a, late, a late 80s version of, uh, of uh, Bill Watts, I would say. And uh, he was a good wrestler, and you know the, the feud he had with Beefcake was pretty much the only role that the WWF used him in. I think by the time that feud was over, they just kind of let him go. But I think he was a guy that that you know either one of the two major promotions could have made better use of uh, as time went along. Yeah, I always thought that Ron Bass and Black Bart, now we're giving Black Bart a different name, uh, should have been a full-time tag team in JCP, mm-hmm. and I think they would have been fine in that role. I mean, you know, Bass, you know, again, by 1988, the big cowboy gimmick had kind of run its course, and as much as I liked Ron Bass, you know, the WWF, I think they kind of did everything they could do with the guy. He had one big run with Beefcake, and that's about it after that. He was just another other guy and, and, and again i think the promotion really didn't know how to push him properly i mean in the wwf he was so cartoony like when he had his interviews he kept talking about betsy like betsy was a you know another person his uh bull whip whatever <laughs> and you know it, it just it just was so you know that part was so juvenile uh, uh but but you know that that's what vince wanted at the time i guess he wasn't you know interested in getting heat and more believable angles he just wanted something that little kids would be you know excited about i guess yeah and he like i said he you know, he fulfilled his role as, as just another guy, uh, one of the ten guys in the opener of the the Survivor Series in 1988. I mean, that's it. I and again, you know, he was in JCP and. They didn't have anything for him there either, and so he went to Florida for a while, and I he must have been starving there. Right, right. And and another guy that we, we need, really need to mention is uh, the Blue Blazer, Owen Hart. I don't know what, what your feelings are on this, John, and you can certainly tell me. I'd like to know. Um, I think Blue Blazer was really a uh, a character that had so much potential. I mean, you know, we had seen in Japan how over Tiger Mask was. I mean, years later, you'd have, uh, you know, Jushin Thunder Liger. Uh, I think that, that initially the WWF wanted the Blue Blazer to be that that kind of a breakout character, but they never really put any steam behind it. They never really put anything into the push. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I agree with you. I think Owen Hart, look, you have guys in wrestling who are high flyers, and then you have guys like Owen Hart who defied gravity in 1988. I mean, he would do crazy moves that you would remember. And, I'm not saying you can make the guy Hulk Hogan, but he was impressive. He was a guy that could make you say, wow, how does a a guy 235 pounds do something like that? And I agree with you. They they kind of blew it with him. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I know years later when he when the WWF was really struggling and and they really didn't have any major heels to go against Brett. That you know, Owen got his big moment in the sun then, and I'm happy he did, and and he made the most of that. But I I kind of think that as a blue blazer, if it if they had pushed it right. Uh, yeah, he really, I think they could have really carved out a niche for him, but uh, for whatever reason, they just kind of never really went all 100% in on it. You know what? I have to say this, though. I had a, remember Owen Hart when he was in WCW in like early 1991? He had that. Very like, briefly, yes. Yeah. And I asked Brian Pillman, who was friends with Owen. I'm like, Brian, you know, what's going on? And Brian's just like, Owen doesn't give a shit. Those were his exact words. <laughs> Owen doesn't give a shit. So that yeah. probably had something to do with it. Well, that, that, could, that could be. And- Remind me to tell you more about this when we get off the air. Okay, all right. Because <laughs> I can't the, tell you the whole story on the air, but <laughs> all right. Well, I'd like to know. But 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 as far as the ending of the match, uh, basically Warrior uh, did his thing, and, and and to me, you know, he looked so blown up 
by the end of the match, a match he was barely even in, he was completely <laughs> blown up. But but he did his thing, and, and the people seemed to be very happy. So I'm in the minority. Uh, he 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 got the crowd going, but I didn't care for him. No, I, I was the same way. You know, there are people who say, "Oh, Vince McMahon shoved Ultimate Warrior down everyone's throat." No, he didn't. Ultimate Warrior got over on his own, and I give him credit for it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, so uh, then, then the next match was the, the huge tag team match with uh, so many tag teams, you could barely see the ring. <laughs> you so could barely on the bounce apron. off the ropes. Pretty much. <laughs> so you got Demolition, the Brain Busters, the Rougeos, the Bolsheviks, and the Conquistadors against the Power of Pain, the British Bulldogs in their final WWF match, all, uh, for, except for Davy Boy Smith, who would come back a few years, few years later, the Hart Foundation, the Rockers, and the Young Stallions. Steve, I knew casual wrestling fans who saw the Powers of Pain come in, and they're like, oh, the WWF signed the Road Warriors. <laughs> right, literally, you know, and, and watching this the other day uh, for the first time in like twenty plus years, uh, it, they, they did look like the uh, Legion of Doom. Uh, you know, it's a little bit with the size and the, and the face paint, but uh, yeah, I can see how the average fan on the street wouldn't really know the difference. No, I, and like I said, a very casual fan, you know, would think that they got the Road Warriors. And I'll tell you something. The Warlord was the big guy on that team, right? The Barbarian Mm -hmm. was the smaller guy. Someone who's listening, remind me to post this picture of me and the Barbarian. It looks like I'm standing in front next to a refrigerator. That's how big that guy was. So imagine how big the Warlord was as, you know, compared to a regular person. Yeah, and, and it's amazing uh, that the fact that uh, both Warlord and Barbarian are still with us. I mean, we've lost uh, so many wrestlers who uh, were chemically enhanced back in the day, and uh, but I'm glad they're still with us. And uh, I remember at the time watching this match. I actually, it, you know, watching it like 30, 40 years ago, whenever it was, I uh, I ever, I really thought that this match was was supremely good. It was an excellent, excellent match. Four stars, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Watching it the other night, I mean, I, I didn't feel as strong about it, but, uh, I, you know, I think the fans in attendance, they really liked the beginning, and I think uh, just seeing the same same workers in the ring over, a, you know, it was a long match. It was, I think it was close to 50 minutes. It was too long, in my opinion. That was yeah, the was one just, thing against it. Was a, it was a great match, but it went a little bit too long, I thought. Yeah, it it really did, and and um, you know, and I would say that uh, you know one of the standouts was definitely Bret Hart. I think that that uh, little mini push they gave him around the time of WrestleMania for uh, him winning the Battle Royal, uh, I think that uh, really uh, helped him get over here. Uh, he was definitely one of the standouts here. I thought Tully Blanchard was the standout in this match. He came across as such a sneaky, devious heel, a, a chicken shit heel. He didn't want to get in the ring at certain points. I remember um, he made the tag, and then he grabbed Shawn Michaels' leg on the way out so the uh, whoever tagged in could stomp on Michaels. I, th- I loved a Tully Blanchard in this match. Nothing against Bret Hart, but I thought Tully just jumped off the screen. Well, I've got right here in my notes, uh, Tully Blanchard, chicken shit heel. So we're definitely uh, <laughs> thinking the exact same thing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I'll tell you this. I mean, one thing, you know, looking back all these years on Survivor Series as, as a thing, an ongoing uh, event, I think one thing that they really dropped the ball on as far as the WWF, what they could have done better was, like, for instance, in, in this match, the con- the conquistadors, you know, really uh, made Las Vegas look terrible. They <laughs> they lasted way to the very end, and there were other matches in Survivor Series. I think maybe the year before, I think Roman Powers lasted to the very end. The following year, Tito Santana made it to the the end of the match with him and Warrior were the last three in the ring. But on their on their syndicated shows, on their on their main shows, uh, on the on the on their network back then, they never said anything like. 
like, uh, well, uh, you know, the Conquistadors after their great performance in Survivor Series are going to be at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, I mean, they never they never utilized that, and they never like with Tito Santana, same thing. I I think that they could have uh, made more of a deal about the, you know what really happened in Survivor Series or these other events, but they never really did. You know, two quick things. Number one, I liked what they did with the Conquistadors. It it gave it an a anything can happen kind of feel. It, it made it less predict- predictable. And mm-hmm. the Conquistadors, look, let's be honest. I have nothing but respect for Jose Estrada and Jose Luis Rivera. But the, the Conquistadors were unpushable. I mean, they, they have to be the jobber tag team. That's all you can do with them. And you're right. The year before, Powers and Roma got a nice push in their match. And I came away from that saying these two as a tag team are pushable. The girls love them. They should do something with these guys. And they never did. One thing I noticed about Paul Roma, whenever they, they show him walking to the ring, he's like talking like nonstop. And, and I have a theory that maybe he's wearing an earpiece and he might be like an FBI agent undercover or living, <laughs> living a dual life or something, a CIA member. I don't know. I, I did not notice that myself, but I mean, good, good pickup. Um, I mean, double turns are tough. And this is where they did the double turn where Mr. Fuji holds open the rope and and demolition smash goes out and they have the turn with axe you know for no reason turning his back on mr fuji and mr fuji pops him in the back with the cane and one thing that they did i'm watching this live and i remember being like this makes no sense why would mr fuji out of nowhere turn on demolition and this is where gorilla monsoon and jesse ventura were at their best because even as a heel announcer and Gorilla as the, you know, Jesse is the heel, Gorilla is the baby face. They're, like, they're both like, there's more to this than meets the eye. And you're like, okay, something went on before the match with Mr. Fuji and the powers of pain. And they got together and it kind of made sense. But, you know, out of the blue, it made no sense. And that's where Gorilla and Jesse, I think, really stepped up. No, you're absolutely right, and and, and they did uh, they did the same thing during the uh, the main event match with Hogan's team. Uh, they really enhanced that match with their commentary. So that, that was another thing I kind of picked up on watching this all these years later. I mean, you you got to give props to Jesse and to Monsoon and 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 Howard Finkel. I mean, he I mean his his introductions of, of the guys is is so perfect. I mean, he is so great at what he did, and um, and, and I did think it was a little awkward the way that you could hear him in the background like when somebody got eliminated he was doing the announcement of so-and-so got eliminated but you couldn't really hear it that well and that was one of those technical things that the wwf would get a whole lot better at in the in the future pay-per-views i mean i I keep saying it you know on every podcast that we talk about you know uh, an 80s pay-per-view i mean everything was in its infancy and they were still struggling struggling with the technology of putting on a show like this live on pay-per-view. I mean, if something's live, a million things can go wrong. Absolutely. So uh, so th- that match ended. The Powers of Pain uh, won the match. And uh, and then we had the, the, the Andre the Giant, Rick Rude, Dino Bravo, Mr. Perfect, and Harley Race against Jim Duggan, Jake Roberts, Scott Casey, Ken Patera, and Tito Santana, the next-to-last match. Well, here's here's my thing about Survivor Series, right? Every match should be at least a decent match because you have 10 guys in there and you can tell your worst wrestler, the worst wrestler of uh, alive, like oh Andre the Giant or Hacksaw Jim Duggan for example. <laughs> Just get in there and give me everything you've got for two or three minutes. That's all I need from you. Do your best spots. Do what you do best. Get in there, like I said, 150 seconds. That's all I need from you. And then in five minutes, I need 60 more seconds for the finish. They couldn't even do that. <laughs> this was a bad, bad match. I mean, 
like I said, the way Survivor Series is is put together, no match should be this bad. And you've got guys, you've got Henning, who's an excellent worker. You've got DB, uh, not DiBiase, excuse me. You've got, you know, Rude, who's good. Race, who's a legend. Uh, Jake wasn't that bad. Yeah, Jake was good. And they, Tito was excellent, and they still couldn't make this thing work. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say, uh, to your point, this is another match that went on way too long. I mean, they did a good job telling the story of, uh, you know, Andre, who had already feuded with Duggan, and he was in the middle of a feud with Jake at this point, and uh, they really emphasized that, but... Uh, Ken Patera looks so old. I mean, he should have he should have went to like a tanning booth and just stayed there for three or four days before this. Was he just he just looks so old in this? In my notes, Patera looks awful. He he did he did, and it was sad. And uh, Scott Casey, uh, I mean, he looked good, but uh, I mean, this is probably like the first time he was really in a, in an important match in years, really. And uh, his life. And he, <laughs> I mean, nothing against Scott Casey, but, you know, name me his second most important match. Well, it, well, it, I think it's interesting to look back on his, his career. Like, when, when that uh, Joe Blanchard promotion was on the USA Network, to, to me, he was like their top babyface for a while there. But here he is as a fill-in at Survivor Series, and I think he got a five grand payoff for this match. And, and uh, you know, good for him. I mean, this is the biggest payoff of his career, and yet it's like one of his, one of his most forgettable matches. It, it was. I mean, you know, he's, he's only one of ten guys. I mean, Dino Bravo, it's been 35 years, and I still will never understand his push. And and a lot of people are like, you know, who listen to this show, they're like, well, if the if the NWA had gotten this guy or that guy, it, it could have all worked. And to me, the WWF succeeding with Dino Bravo at if he wasn't their number one heel at one point, he was darn close. In a way, it almost tells you that it, it's not uh, – talent matters. Of course talent matters. But if you push the right guy the right way and people are just into your product, they'll buy into it. Well, well Dino Bravo, I mean, just, just two or three years earlier, uh, he was you know gaining these huge crowds in Montreal. I mean, he was kind of like uh, – like uh, Rick, what Rick Flair was in the Carolinas, or what Bruno was in New York, Dino Bravo was in Montreal. He was selling out. He was drawing like twenty, over twenty thousand for cards up there, and and he was looked upon as a local legend. And he really was a good wrestler then. But uh, giving him the blonde hair, making him a goofy heel, uh, you know, he put on a lot of weight, uh, a lot of muscle, but <laughs> a lot of weight. He was slowed down. Uh, he was way past his prime at this point, and it showed. You're making me kind of sad, Steve, because I had the, I could have gone up to Montreal, it's only a four-hour trip, and caught one of those shows where, you know, Dino Bravo and the Rougeos were all the rage, and I just never got around to it, you know, 40 years ago. I, I wish I had done that. No, I, I remember uh, even PWI was pushing the fact that they were supposedly pushing for a Bravo versus Hogan match around 85 or 86, uh, and that never happened. Uh, you know, there was no need for that. But uh, he was he was quite the drawback in the day. But it was to see him in this match the way he was, it was just uh, definitely uh, not the great wrestler that you and I saw in the late 70s with the dark hair and the great drop kicks. And he had really uh, fallen, fallen really far off by now. I mean... I think of all the wrestlers who dyed their hair blonde, Dino Bravo looked the most ridiculous, and its I don't even know who's in second place, maybe Dan Crawford. Um, but, I, I mean, the push made no sense. Harley Race looks beyond out of place here. I, I love Harley Race, but, you know, he's in there, in, in that uh, arena with guys like Rick Rude and, and Kurt Henning, and then there's Andre the Giant being Andre, and uh, Harley, he just looks like this, you know, this guy, I know he wasn't in his 50s, but he looked like he was in his 50s, totally out of place. Well, he was staying there next to 
next to Kurt Hennig, and, and it, it flashed on me that here's the guy, you know, race in his early days was tagging up with Larry the Axe Hennig. Yep. And, and, and Kurt Hennig, uh, here, he, Kurt looks so noticeably smaller here. I mean, he hadn't really gotten the, the Mr. Perfect look yet, the singlet that we're familiar with, and you know, the blonder hair. He kind of looked, you know, plain and generic, like uh, Kurt Hennig facing Lawler in Memphis or Kurt Hennig in the AWA, but Plus, he's got that generic Survivor Series T-shirt. That's right, and and he didn't get the Titan Sports uh, vitamins yet either. Mm. They weren't shipped to him quite yet. But uh, they, they, you know, he, he I, I was glad that he got to survive in the match. He got to you know last to the end. I think with uh, Dino was his partner. They both made it to the end. But it was a match that went on way too long. But uh, it did keep Andre over if that's what they were trying to do. The one good thing I have to say about this match is the way it was booked. That Jake's partners all got eliminated and Jake was the battling baby face fighting to the end until he got choked out by Andre the Giant. They did an interview before this match. It was all three guys, three heels, Andre Bravo, Rude, Henning and Race, and then the managers, Bobby Heenan and Frenchie Martin, and then Gene Okerlund con- uh, conducting the interview. So that's eight guys. I'm like, oh my God, they're all dead. Yeah, sad. It is sad. And, you know, look, Andre the Giant in 1988 didn't have 35 years left in him, okay? Probably neither did Harley race, but just all of them. Just wow. Yeah, Harley, um, Harley actually, um, they would try to give him a renewed push in January at, this, at the Royal Rumble, which we won't be reviewing. Uh, he, they, had him, they had him in the Battle of the Kings match against King Haku, and uh, I think they tried to use him a little bit as a baby face, but after that, he was you know, working in Canada, worked at AWA show against Larry Zabisco, and then he ended up being uh, Vader's manager in uh, WCW a couple years after that. I've told the story in the show before, but we were in Baltimore for the 1991 Great American Bash, and I'm getting off the elevator with my friends. Harley Race is getting on the elevator, and we're all like, oh, wow, they're bringing in Harley Race, obviously. And I was with Harry White, who knew Harley Race, and those, they had a little bit of a conversation like, wow, we're both St. Louis guys here in Baltimore. What do you know? But I remember it's like, wow, oh, they're bringing in Harley Race. And later that day, I'm like, yeah, they're bringing in Harley Race. He's getting, he's being pushed as uh, Lex Luger's manager, and Lex Luger's the w- WCW champion. I think I can remember uh, being at a buddy's house and we were watching a WCW pay-per-view. And I think that the match that they had on was Harley Race coming in, you know, is, is uh, you know, just coming in cold against uh, Tommy Rich. Yeah. Kind of like a battle of the eighties. <laughs> I was, we were, we were really rooting for Harley though. But just, I mean, this guy had accomplished so much. How could you root against him? No, that was the year before in Baltimore in 1990. And yeah, just, you know, Harley Race and that weird purple singlet they had him in. Andre the Giant, what I had heard, I'm just conveying what I heard, WrestleMania 3 was supposed to be it for Andre. That was it. He was in bad health. He was retiring. Then Andre's feeling better. Let's put him in the Survivor Series. Let's bring him back for WrestleMania uh, 4. And now it's like the luster of Andre is really beginning to wear off. It's like, okay, he, you know, all right, let's bring him in for the summer. Hulk Hogan's taking the summer off. We'll have Andre against Duggan in the uh, B shows. And then Andre against Randy Savage for the WWF Championship in some in some uh, arenas. And now he's out there feuding. He just got done feuding with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And now he's going to feud with, with uh, Jake Roberts. It's like, you know, kind of a Andre's no longer special in a weird way. You know, I, I actually saw in Binghamton one of those matches. Uh, it was Andre against Jake Roberts, and and I can remember being, you know, we were, we had seats fairly close to the ring, and and uh, uh, you know, of all people, uh, you <laughs> you never guess who one of the road agents was. It was Grizzly Smith, Jake's dad, and Grizzly Smith is so friggin' huge. He's like he's like six foot ten himself. So so he's standing there. Jake is huge himself. Jake's like six 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 seven something like that, and 
and and Andre's all hunched over, but he's huge. But 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 just Andre standing there next to Jake's father, uh, Grizzly Smith. Andre didn't look as big anymore, and and I got to see Nick Bockwinkle that night, who was another road agent there that night, which was kind of funny. Oh well, did you get to talk to Nick at all? No, no. All right. Yeah, I would just you know walk up and say, you know, Nick, I'm a big fan from way back. How you doing? <laughs> that that sort of thing. But <laughs> anyway, I, I, what what else is Nick gonna do in Binghamton, right? Well, there there was one time, and I don't think I've ever mentioned this on the show. Uh, me and my buddy that we we go to the shows a lot together, uh, uh, Dave Rogan. He he thought it'd be a great idea that, that that he would bring this huge huge sign. We were sitting practically in the fr- front row of a TV taping, and it had this huge plastic what looked like a needle, like you'd inject yourself with. Oh no! <laughs> and, yeah, and and it said like it was either he either wrote it out in big letters below or above anabolic warrior. So here we are at the TV taping, and he's like holding this up high. And before you know it, Pat Patterson and a, and a policeman are here, like coming up to us, asking us to put our stuff away. And then ended up being in the Observer that part. But uh, but we were embar- I was embarrassed. I mean I mean I didn't want to you know shut the show down or slow down the show because we were just being goofy guys at the wrestling show. And I think I gave Pat the sign, and then the show continued. But it was kind of funny at the time. That is pretty funny, and you know what the da- the name Dave Bolin now rings a bell. I could swear I can remember him from the Observer Reader pages. <laughs> well, and, and no, I, well, actually, my friend's name is Dave Rogan, but uh, oh, yeah, he okay. Was, but but I, I would I would give him my observers, and he would read them, and he he just thought it was the greatest thing on earth, like like the rest of us did too. All right, Dave Rogan, I don't remember you. I remember a Dave Bolin, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Rob Nelson asks us why wasn't the WWF title defended here? And I think it was good that the title wasn't defended for a couple of reasons. Number one. You get to use Randy Savage, or the WWF champion, on a show without having to... You get to put him in a match where he doesn't have to defend the title, where you don't have to build up a challenger. Um, you get to use him in something special. I have always said, and I've always maintained, Ric Flair should have been in the Crockett Cup in the tournament. He should not have been in a singles match because that way you get to use Ric Flair out of his normal element, which was starting to get stale. And then you could have him in the final match and then someone in the tag team pins Ric Flair and you bang, you've got an instant feud, an instant program. So I I think it was good that they didn't have the WWE champion in a singles match, at least in the first few Survivor Series. No, well, I, I feel the same way, and I, I, I was, I was thinking about this last night. I, I, I kind of think that Vince was thinking of, you know, WrestleMania is my show of shows where you're going to see the most important matches of the year. You're going to see the title defended, and something's going to happen. But I think he thought of Survivor Series, and then later on the Royal Rumble is more like we could think of it like the NBA All Star Game. Let's get all the best players. Let's put them in different situations not what you're used to, like you said. Uh, it would have been more interesting to see Flair in a tag team match where he could lose uh, and put somebody else over and make them a star rather than just, hey, we're going to have uh, Ric Flair defend the, the title tonight. Well, big deal. He defends on all the other shows too. He you know? defends it every night, exactly. So I, I think it was good that they didn't have uh, Randy Savage defending the WWF champion at this point. One thing that was different about the... 87 Survivor Series versus the 88 Survivor Series. 87, I thought, was great because you had the top five baby faces in the promotion against the top five heels in the promotion. Now, mm-hmm. you could argue, oh, Morocco really wasn't top five. Okay, but it's close. And now you're kind of switching guys around so that so that you know you have more star power in each individual match yet you don't have that giant match at the end and let's be honest you've got Coca Ware, Hercules Hernandez, Haku, you know Terry Taylor as much as a fan uh, as I was of him these guys felt kind of out of place well, um, I, I, I see what you're saying. It, it definitely is not like, hey, let's take the top five against the top five heels. It's certainly not that. And but, you can't uh, do that every year. I get that. 
Yeah, and uh, but but I mean, when you look at Hogan's team, you, you know, it, it does have the, you, you know, you could definitely buy in the fact that uh, Hillbilly Jim was his friend and uh, Coco Beware, which is another longtime WWF guy. I mean, they were certainly all together in the Pile Driver video. <laughs> you got to give credit to that. And, and Hercules was a, a brand new baby face. He had just done the heel deal with uh, DiBiase a little bit before the show. Uh, and of course, Hogan and Savage together uh, I mean I mean I could see what, how they would assemble a team like that um, the other team um, you know the the, the twin the twin towers Akeem and Bossman uh, how they ended up getting paired up with DiBiase and Haku and Red Rooster that just seemed like a real uh, cluster F you know they're just thrown together and mm. here they are well, before we get to that, I, I want to share a story, Steve. We were watching the 1989, uh, the the big NBC event where Randy Savage turned. We were oh, yeah. all hanging out at Jamie Ward's house, right, down in Philadelphia. And we were goofing on Vern Gagne and the Hercules turn. We somehow merged these two. And we're <laughs> like, you know, if Vern Gagne had Abe Lincoln as a baby face, he wouldn't know how to use him. He'd make him a heel. <laughs> and someone barks out, yeah, and Virgil would be his slave. And someone else is like, yeah, and Harry Tubman would be his valet. So, oh, God. It was a good time shared from 35 years ago. But anyway, <laughs> I thought the Harriet Tubman line was great. Um, it wasn't even mine. Uh, but this was a really good match, and it served its purpose as you know, furthering the Hulk Hogan Randy Savage and Elizabeth storyline. Like, you know, okay, if at the end of this, you could be the densest mark in the world and you knew Randy Savage was turning. Yeah, I, I think the, one of the most memorable moments of the entire show was just at the very end, uh, Hogan had picked up Elizabeth and kind of gave her a congratulatory hug. And uh, Savage just, you know, caught it out of the corner of his eye. And then ever, ever, right up to the very ending of the show, he has that crazed uh, look in his eye of jealousy. And and the announcers didn't even have to put it over. They it just it just the pictures, you know, were a thousand words. You could tell there's there's heat amongst the mega powers. Yeah, you know what? Um, I mean, and for those who don't remember, and I didn't remember, they did a deal where Bossman handcuffs Hogan to the bottom rope. Slick has the key. Somehow Slick gets knocked down. Elizabeth gets the key, frees Hogan. Uh, Hogan tags Savage without Savage even knowing he was being tagged. He was being, you know, beaten up. And then Hogan instantly wins, wins the match. And then Hogan, without any regard for Randy Savage, who's been getting beat up for like five minutes while Hogan was handcuffed, just grabs Elizabeth and puts him on his shoulder. And I, I, like I said, I didn't remember this coming in. Steve, we talked about the Larry Zabisco turn, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Larry Zabisco, no, he should have never done that to Bruno Sammartino. But I didn't blame... Larry Zabisco for being pissed. I thought Larry Zabisco had a point, okay? He's the bad guy. He shouldn't have done what he did, but he has a point. Randy Savage had a lot more than a point here. Hulk Hogan came across as the guy who wants to go after his best friend's girl. I mean, he just went straight for Elizabeth, and I thought that was goofy booking. I think if you're a kid watching this on TV, you're like, hey, wait a minute. This guy's being kind of forward here. Yeah, yeah, but I guess you could see it from the other standpoint, too. I mean, we, we've, we've seen the match. We've, we saw what occurred. I mean, a, a Hulk got beaten down. He got really the you know really beaten down badly. Uh, he had to make a major comeback just to win the match and pin Haku. Uh, yes, he did celebrate with Elizabeth, but it wasn't like he kissed her on the lips or anything. He did hoist her up. Uh, I, I'm sure he would have hoisted Randy up if he hadn't been so beaten in the corner. But, um, yeah, but you, you make a good point. I mean, you could really look at it from both perspectives. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, you know, they, they quickly went off the air. At least the, the Peacock version went quickly off the air uh, right after. And you can see Savage, you know, he's composed, but he's not happy at all with Hulk Hogan. And, again, I, I don't blame him at all. I think Hogan... 
you know, of course, in character was just, you know, what he was doing was wrong, quite frankly. He should have shown a little bit more concern about his friend instead of completely ignoring him and going straight for the girl. Well, Jesse had the line of the night when he did uh, catch Elizabeth picking uh, Slick's pocket there. That was good. <laughs> taking taking Slick's wallet, too, and the money. <laughs> and I have to give, you know, going back, I have to give Gorilla Monsoon credit. You pointed out that, you know, Hillbilly Jim and Hogan had a long history. Gorilla Monsoon brought up that in 1984 in Storyline, it was Hulk Hogan who got Hillbilly Jim into the business. I thought that was a, a really good little point. Oh yeah, and and, and um, Je- Jesse had some really funny lines there. He at one point Jesse said, uh, "Yeah, yeah, Monsoon, I remember you wrestling Alondos back in the day." <laughs> <laughs> I usually don't have a lot of good things to say about Gorilla Monsoon. I thought it, largely he was awful, but he was really good on this night. I give the guy credit. Obviously, same thing with Jesse. Oh yeah, they they had a lot to the show. I, I mean, um, I mean, you know, not to bash on for uh, WCW, but um, you know, their announcers. I mean, Jim Ross always tried super super hard, but I mean, these guys were better as far as like hitting the the main points and and really telling the story pretty well. I agree. I thought they had good chemistry together. I thought that, you know, Jesse would sometimes, uh, if he was with a Sean Mooney or something like someone like that, he could be very condescending in a funny way. But he always showed Gorilla Monsoon respect, and Gorilla showed it back, and I thought they were always a great combo. Yeah, they, they were my favorite combo. They really uh, had good chemistry together, and, and they did uh, try to call the matches, which was unique for WWF. And they on this night, they seemed very prepared as well. I Hats off to both of them. Steve, overall, I mean, WWF 1988 was not exactly a work-rate-oriented promotion, but I thought this was a really good show. Was it as good as 1987? No, that's not a realistic expectation. I thought it was a good show. Three... Excellent to really good matches and one bad match. You know what? What else can you ask? Did, did you think, in in retrospect, uh, uh, you know they didn't really have, uh, I guess, enough ladies to have a ladies match, but they certainly had a ladies match in '87, uh, and that was pretty good because of the jumping bomb angels. Uh, oh, that was a good match because of everyone. I mean, even Moolah was good on that night. Yeah. Do, do you think they should have tried to bring a, a ladies match for '88? Um, you know what? I'm going to say yes, and I'll tell you why. Because you could have had a good 20-minute women's match and cut down on the length of that Andre the Giant slash Jake Roberts uh, Hacksaw Duggan match. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, hey, we do have a whole bunch of questions to get to. John Ware asks, what was worse, Hakeem or the Red Rooster? And that was the first question we got. And I was like, I could have an entire podcast (laughs) on this question. I have a lot to say. Steve, one man gang in the first in world class and then the UWF, he, he got that crazy mohawk in world class. He looked like the ultimate, the the perfect opponent for Hulk Hogan. And I believe his absolute high ceiling, One Man Gang, was a main event at WrestleMania. Now, I'm not saying, you know, don't go to your friends, people, and say McAdams says, oh, yeah, they should have ditched Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan or Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant for Hulk Hogan and One Man Gang. That's not what I'm saying. But he would have been a better opponent than King Kong Bundy and properly pushed one-man gang in the WWF. He was perfect, and they seemed to show no interest in that character. But then they made him this ridiculous, I don't even know what to call it. They turned him into Akeem the African Dream, and they pushed that. To this day, it makes no sense. 
Yeah, I, I mean, in 87, they did give uh, One Man Gang a partial run uh, against Hogan. I mean, they did some house show matches. They did the Paul Bosch retirement show together in the main event. I, I could see I could see them maybe wanting to give you know, One Man Gang uh, a different character, but this was such a over-the-top and stupid and goofy. Um, I, as far as John Ware's question, though, I think, I think Red Rooster was even worse in the sense of, well, at least, you know, One Man Gang did get a run in 87. Uh, Red Rooster never really was given a chance to uh, have a, a role that was marketable or a role that would work. I mean, as we talked about earlier, I mean, you had guys like Kurt Hennig who had come in and they were finding him a way to be the Mr. Perfect. They hadn't really reached it by this show. Uh, Blue Blazer had come in earlier. They were trying to find a way to make him work. But they never really put any effort into into Red Rooster. And instead, it was just like an inside joke. Hey, we don't like this guy because he talks too much, or he's got too much personality, or he's so cocky that we're going to call him, uh, you know, a cocky Red Rooster. I mean, yeah, I know Vince likes his inside jokes, but trying to sabotage his career or just make him look like the butt of a joke, it just got to be just too much. It really was, um, and I don't care what anyone says on any other podcast, I am right when I tell you that that gimmick killed Terry Taylor's career, killed it dead, there was no recovering from that. You're, you're right, and in fact, I'm, I'm surprised that he ended up having a career in wrestling behind the scenes after that, too. I mean, he uh, somehow his persistence prevailed, I guess, but... Uh, uh, it it was unfortunate what happened to him. I mean, Terry Taylor was Terry Taylor. You know, I've been around him a couple of times. He has no problem pissing people off. Bill Watts liked him and pushed him hard. And I will, I will go, I will die on the hill that you know Terry Taylor was absolutely pushable in 1988. But he, you know, he did whatever he did to piss Dusty off, and he had to go to the WWF and and do whatever Vince wanted. I think a lot of 1988 World Class is available on Peacock. I invite everyone, go watch early 1988 World Class. Terry Taylor was phenomenal. I mean, how do you look at that guy and say, okay, you can't push him? I I will, again, I will go to my grave saying he could have been a very effective member of the Four Horsemen. Well, that, that's my biggest issue with this era of the WWF. I mean, the guy wasn't all roided up, uh, and I well, guess he was, I guess you, but well, I mean, I mean, I mean, he wasn't. He didn't look like Warlord. He didn't look like Barbarian. But I guess at this point, you you have to look like that, or just be a naturally big guy like Ron Bass was. Um, it's a shame that that they couldn't have found a niche for him because I think he would have been. Uh, in the in the right way, maybe with a good manager, maybe they could have pushed him into in a way to draw money. He absolutely could have drawn money and just let him be Terry Taylor, but instead they made him this guy who, you know, on screen was apologizing to Bobby Heenan for not being the biggest guy and not being the most talented guy. And it's like, you know, like you said, they booked him to fail. They they booked him as like an inside joke and. You know, to me, that that's just self-defeating and whatever. You know what? The WWF, at the end of the day, was successful, pushing Terry Taylor the way they did. But to me, it was a missed opportunity. I, I agree with that. Um, Michael Faulkner asked, how much of the Hogan Savage feelings for Elizabeth Engel was a shoot? I have to think Savage could be unstable enough to actually believe it. Uh, well, I mean, I, I can't tell you what was going on in Hulk Hogan's head in real life, but I mean, I mean, Elizabeth, I mean, there are a lot of very, very pretty women on TV, Steve, all the time, including in 1988, but Elizabeth was stunning. I mean, not just by pro wrestling standards, by any standard, she was stunning, Um you know, friend of the show, Dave Flaherty, posted a picture of he, Elizabeth, and Randy Savage just randomly, you know, getting out of the arena. And Elizabeth, you know, she didn't have TV makeup or anything like that. And she was just drop-dead gorgeous. So you'd have to think that, you know, if, if Elizabeth was like, you know, uh, hey, Hulk, I'm interested, you know, Hulk would say, okay, so am I. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think, uh, to try and answer his question, 
Um, I, you know, Randy Savage uh, was many things, but I, I mean, I think he was a really good businessman from everything we've heard. I mean, he was very tight with a dollar, I mean, very on the cheap side, like the miser taught him to be. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, he knew he knew the difference between you know what was what was going on in the ring and the, the storyline compared to his real life. Uh, so we, yeah, and I, I don't think. Uh, I don't think that this this angle affected him. Just like the thing he did with with Flair and Elizabeth later on didn't didn't bother him either. It was just it was just a part of doing business. You know, a lot of people criticize Randy Savage for keeping Elizabeth away from the other wrestlers. Trust me, kids, he did the right thing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he, he just trust me, he did the smart and right thing to stay married to her for as long as he was married to her. Well, watching the show last night, I, I, you know, watched her and she had this red dress on and, and I thought, um, I mean, she really looked really so nice, you know, so sweet, you know, sexy in a kind of a, almost like a Taylor Swift way, you know, kind of a, a GP related sexiness there. Definitely not uh, anything too overboard, but uh, just like the girl next door. I mean, just a sweet, yes. and nice young lady. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, again, it's very heartbreaking to think that she died so young too. Uh, but uh, Jamie Waldrop has a question. He says, what were your feelings on a gimmick-based pay-per-view? No championship matches, just five-on-five elimination matches that made wrestlers look weak, going down in a minute or, or to a normal, uh, I guess, going going down to uh, uh, losing quickly, I guess is what he's trying to say. No, I know what he's trying to say, and my, my answer is that they did it the smart way. They You had so many guys doing jobs that it didn't matter, that they, it all got lost in the wash at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and like I said on the earlier, they never really mentioned it on the show anyhow. So unless you're watching, it really didn't matter too much. Yeah, I mean, the more you have of something, the less it matters. Usually, that's a negative thing when it comes to you know wrestlers bleeding or turns. But in this case, it worked to the the promotion's advantage. Just you know, so many guys did clean jobs on this night that it did not hurt anybody. Sure. All right, David Ferguson asks, do you like the Survivor Series concept? Would mixing a few singles matches in have improved the pay-per-view? In my opinion, first of all, I love the concept. I remember hearing about it like early, no, mid-1987 that the WWF was having a a pay-per-view based on, and here's the quote, a non-violent war games. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's exactly as, how it was put to me, and that's kind of how it came across. And it was unique at the time. In 1987, you know, I loved the concept. You just can't do it every year. And I think by 1990, I was like, oh, man, this, you know, nothing but five-man tags all night is getting really old. But, I mean, at least at the beginning, David, I loved the concept. I thought it was it was really good. And... And the execution of the first two uh, Survivor Series were outstanding. Yeah, yeah, I, I I would put myself in the same boat there. I think in the early years, just because it was so novel, uh, you didn't need to have extra matches. But but like you said, by ninety ninety one, they did have to add in uh, maybe a championship match, a couple of other singles or tag matches, just to uh, kind of mix it up a little bit or change it up a bit. And, you know, it's it's the WWF. I mean, it's no longer the territory days. I mean, the top five guys on each side in 1988 are not that much different than 87 or 89. So that that provides its own challenge. Mm-hmm. All right. You got another question. Let's see here. Jens Grink, if I'm saying that right. Uh, uh, says, on the first Survivor Series pay-per-view, they were all WWF tag teams and one big tag elimination match. Personally, I like the tag elimination matches. What's your opinion about it? Well, the first year, I mean, that tag team elimination match was maybe not a match of the year candidate, but it was like a four and a half star match. And and this 1988, you know, it, it's still a four star match. So, I mean, aside from the fact that you've got nine guys on the apron, at least to start on each side. So 18 guys on the apron, which is kind of clumsy. Um, I mean, it really came together well. I, I loved it. 
Yeah, I, I I enjoyed that match. It was uh, both both matches, eighty seven and eighty eight, were both really exciting. And and I remember Dave Meltzer at the time said, uh, you know, just the fact that uh, y- you had um, so many workers involved. I mean, uh, the, the complaint about WWF was always you know poor work rate, but since you could work in these short spurts and get out of the ring and have somebody else come in, that really killed that argument. Yeah, I mean, and you know, like I said, the they didn't have a women's match in '88, but the the women's match in '87, I mean, it blew away every other women's match I had or U.S. women's match I had ever seen to that point. And you know, everyone was on that night, including you know, not just the girls from Japan. I mean, you know, Lilani Kai was killing it on that night. Oh yeah, yeah, and Judy Martin too. I remember yes. that and. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's amazing. I mean, uh, to look, to look back on these shows that are 30, 40 years old and to, to imagine a point now where we are with Rhea Ripley and Charlotte Flair. I mean, I never would have guessed in a million years that the workers of the women's division would have exceeded any of the men, but, but really Rhea and Charlotte are better than any of the men now, in my opinion. Um, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I remember uh, Charlotte and what's the girl's name? She's from Boston. I should know this. She's not with the WWF anymore. Oh, yeah, I know you mean. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember her name, but she should have been a superstar. Sasha Banks. That's it. And uh, what was the other girl's name? The uh, Shayla ba- Sh- Shayna Baszler. Right. I-, I will never stop complaining that those two were a gold mine that absolutely should have been superstars in the business, and the WWE just wouldn't let it happen because that's the way they are. Yeah, yeah. Well, they 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 do have a deep roster of women. Uh, they just got to figure out how to make the men as interesting. I guess. <laughs> yeah, really. The hour goes by so fast every week. I want to thank everyone for listening, and Steve, I want to thank you for joining us once again. Well, thank you, John, and thank you to everyone on the Facebook page for contributing the great questions. We yes. couldn't have done it without you guys and girls. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. And if you have not joined the Facebook group yet, look, I understand. I got dragged kicking and screaming into Facebook. I wanted, I wanted no part of that. And if you if you have if you're not part of Facebook, if you want to avoid Facebook, do what I do. Lie to your family and friends. Lie to the people who are closest to you and say, no, I don't have a Facebook page. (laughs) And then sign up just so that you can be part of the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page. And with that said, I want to thank Brian Last for giving me uh, this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does week in and week out producing Stick to Wrestling and, and being flexible with his schedule. And we'll be back next week. We look forward to having you back next week. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols, beat Missouri. This concludes our podcast day.